Amen. You guys can have a seat. If you're here for the first time, we're, we're so glad you're with us today. Um, before we ba- jump back into the book of John, I want to remind you of our year-end giving initiative um, where we're asking people to give above and beyond their normal giving to help uh, fuel church planting and mission sending around the world. Um, we've been raising uh, and giving money outside of our church to missions and church planning before we really ever started, um, even when we were primarily supported from uh, outside supporters. You know, churches would send us a check for $5,000 and we would turn around and send it right back out. Um, you know, even still today, two years in, people in churches uh, who don't go to new cities still uh, help give to help us operate. Uh, but we unashamedly have mission sending and church planting as a major part of what we're about here at New City. And so we want to give money away to it um, because there are people all over the world that not only don't know about Jesus, uh, but they don't have anybody around them to tell them or, or near them. Uh, and so we've committed as a church to do whatever it takes to get the gospel around the world to those who have never heard. You know, we take the Great Commission very seriously. God has uh, commanded us as followers of Christ to make disciples of all nations. And so this is not an option for Christians to maybe be a part of if we feel like it. No, these were Jesus's last words right before he left the earth. And so because of that, we have uh, built into the foundation of our church. uh, We have built it on the Great Commission. And the purpose of our church is to make disciples of all nations, starting here in Tampa uh, and to send them and around the world. Uh, And so we don't have some cute vision and purpose uh, that we just came up with. No, our vision is the vision that Jesus left for his people right before he left the earth. Uh, God's plan uh, to reach the world is the church. It's the people of God. And because of that, as we say often, uh, the church is God's plan A to reach the world, and there is no plan B. And, And so what do we do? We want to plant and start new churches all over the world and make disciples that also seek to make disciples uh, and multiply churches and mobilize missionaries. You know, we had a Zoom call uh, this past week with our church planner in the Dominican Republic um, that we sent money to last year. Um, They're launching in January. They're doing really well. Um, We're hoping to send a team there this summer. And what I love about their vision uh, is that it's really the exact same vision that we have. Um, They're planting a church in the Dominican Republic with the purpose of planting churches in every province in the Dominican in order to then send their people to the ends of the earth. They uh, they want people in the Dominican to go from the receiving side of missions uh, to the sending side of missions uh, to send their people to places like South Asia in the Middle East, where uh, where the Dominican people are generally more accepted than we are. And one of our long-term uh, partnership dreams with them is for their people to partner with our people and send teams together at the same time to the unreached around the world. And so get this, every time we plant more churches that have the Great Commission in mind, we are multiplying our sending capacity to reach the lost and the unreached around the world. And so like I said last week, um, this, this year we're partnering with one of my good friends who's planting a church in Halifax, Canada, uh, which is the second fastest growing city in Canada, where most of the people who are moving there, um, 64% to be exact, are from places like Iran, North Africa, and East India, places where the name of Jesus is widely not known at all. And not only that, in their city, there are over 30,000 college students. But the problem is, there's very little gospel witness to these students. In fact, one of their, uh, one of their college campuses is considered by some to be the least reached college campus in North America. And when all the missions gurus talk about global missions and North American church planning, Canada tops the charts in terms of desperate need for gospel witness. And so we're going to partner with them to help. 
New City Church, just like we saw last week in John 4, there are people all over the world in hostile places that are thirsty and desperate looking for the true life that is found in Jesus. And just like Jesus told his disciples in John 4, may we look and see that the fields are white for harvest. May we do whatever it takes to get uh, at all costs to get the gospel around the world to those who are thirsty and searching for Jesus, but yet they don't know where or how to find it because no one's there to tell them. Maybe you've heard the Carl Henry quote that says the gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. And so this is what we're about. Missional urgency for us is not some sort of tagline. Being apathetic about God's global mission is not an option. We can't be apathetic about the things that God is passionate about. And so because of that, every Christian has a responsibility to the Great Commission. We all make disciples wherever God has placed us. Some move to the ends of the earth to do that. And the rest of us send to the ends of the earth. But without a doubt, every Christian, whether we move or life or not, we are all called to pray and give and go at some level. You know, we as a church, every week, uh, we pray for our partners, for the nations in our city groups. And every year as a church, we seek to walk in obedience and give with church planting and global missions in mind. Um, we go wherever we live, work, and play here in Tampa. We go into our city with things like Serve Weeks, uh, Serve Week, and we hope to send people around the world on short-term, mid-term, and long-term, uh, in a long-term capacity. In fact, uh, in the, within the next five years, we're praying to be able to send out one church planting, one church planter with a team, and also for five long-term missionaries. Sending is what we just want to do. But you know what? Giving, without a doubt, helps, fuel, helps to fuel sending. And so I hope you'll join me in praying and giving uh, and going, but more specifically, by the, by, at the end of this year, I'm praying that we, would, uh, we will be keeping extravagant generosity at the front of our minds as we close out the year. But we'll be talking about more of this in the weeks to come. Um, but with that said, we're going to pivot here uh, and take what may seem like a hard right turn uh, and jump into the end of John 4 and talk about healings and miracles, which I think we'll see is way more connected to the Great Commission uh, than we may initially think. And this, this is what we're going to do today, okay? It's going to seem a little strange. Um, I'm going to read our entire short story up front, um, touch on what we may think is the main idea, looking at healings and miracles, um, but it's actually not the main point, and I, and I hope to show you why. Um, but we're going to talk about it anyways, uh, very briefly, because it comes up in our passage, and then we're going to get into the main point of today, and then we'll give you three points uh, to go along with that. And so first, we're going to talk about what it's not about, and, and then we'll get into what it's about. But all that to say, you know, if you remember from last week, uh, we saw Jesus encounter uh, the woman at the well in Samaria, and God made her a missionary, and a revival broke out in Samaria, uh, which I, I think seems like a pretty good day of ministry. And then Jesus goes back to Galilee, which was like a large region, uh, and many of the people there have been keeping up with Jesus in his travels. Uh, they've been with him at some points, uh, and then he goes to a small part of that Galilean region named Cana. And this is where we pick up, and this is where our story begins in verse 46 of John 4. This is what it says. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir... Come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servant met him and told him that his son was recovering. Uh, so he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday, 
At the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. Uh, This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. And so I found this to be an interesting story because a high-ranking official uh, had a terminally sick son and he begins, uh, he begs Jesus to heal his son. Jesus heals him uh, like it's no big deal and the man and his entire household believe and the story is over. Now I know it's more than that um, and we'll get into it, but like I said, I want to address a glaring theme um, and this is the part uh, that's not the main point and it's this idea of healings and miracles. And y'all, there's so much to say here, and I'm not going to say nearly enough, uh, because like I said, it's not the main point. But all that to say, uh, I do think our story calls us to pray for physical, mental, and emotional healings, because Jesus does it. We should absolutely beg God for miraculous healing, seeing God as a great healer and the great physician, uh, knowing that Jesus has the power to heal. And I would say to not pray for miracles like this might be to doubt the power of God. I believe God does these types of things today, especially with things like we see in this story with the slow recovery back to health. And not only that, James 5 calls us to confess our sins, gather the elders, and pray for healings. And we've done this here at New City. We've gathered the elders and pray for God to heal the sick in our church. But that said, there are two sides here that we need to avoid. There's extremes on both sides. Like we can overemphasize them and we can also underemphasize them. First, to overemphasize healings is to emphasize physical healings and miracles way more than they should be emphasized. In essence, spending more time praying for physical healing than spiritual healing. We'll see this in our story, uh, but Jesus is more concerned with spiritual revival of our souls because that's what lasts forever. In fact, most of the miracles we see in the Bible are surrounded by spiritual healings and belief in Jesus. They were almost always used to authenticate the message and the messenger of God's word and also display the power of God. And so if one danger is to overemphasize physical healings, making them greater than spiritual healings, then on the other side, the other danger is to underemphasize physical healings or just plain ignore it. And for me, um, it's really hard to ignore it and not pray for it when the Bible calls us to do it and to pray for it like we see in James 5. In fact, 1 Corinthians 12 lists miracles and healings as spiritual gifts right there next to helping and administration and various other things. And so we can't neglect these things. And these are things we have to really wrestle with. There's so many things we could say here, but at the very least, I truly believe we should beg God earnestly uh, for physical, mental, and emotional healings. And he may do it, he may not. And whether God does it or not, at the very least, it is an act of worship, uh, attesting that we believe that God is able and it shows our belief in the power of God. You know, I don't know the mind of God. (laughs) I don't know why he heals some and not others. But just what if in today's world, our joy in the midst of suffering is a far better testimony to the world than miraculous healings? Again, he may heal, he may not. But we should pray pray and beg God to do it, knowing and trusting that he is able. But all that to say, physical healings aren't the point today. Uh, And and let me show you why, because when we read this story, it's easy uh, for the healing to seem like the most glaring thing that happened. Like it's the fancy, exciting part of the story because the boy was healed. But that's not what we're going to focus on. Because if you look down in verse 48... 
Jesus calls out the people in this area for putting too much emphasis on Jesus's miracles, uh, which is why we're not focusing on it. (laughs) Uh, Look what he says in verse 48. He says, so Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. So Jesus sees into their hearts, he sees their motives, and he calls them out. And it's almost like uh, they see Jesus as some like magic freak show. Uh, They don't know Jesus as the Messiah. They just like his miracles. Uh, This sentence in verse 48, it's interesting. It's one of those strange Jesus statements that seems odd and cold, uh, kind of in the context of it. I mean, this man, think about this. He's he's begging Jesus to heal his son. And the first thing out of Jesus' mouth that we see to him was, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. (laughs) I don't know about you. It doesn't seem to be the most compassionate response. Um, It seems like a doctor with really bad bedside manner. I mean, he asked him to heal his son, and it seems like Jesus is just kind of brushing him off. So, But follow me here. This, this is Jesus. He's not doing that. So let's pay attention, because what's interesting about this is that he's not talking here about this man. Because if you were actually to look in the footnote of your Bible, you would notice the two use statements are plural. They're not singular in the original language. And so he's telling this man, this official, about everyone there, like the surrounding audience, that they won't believe unless they see signs and wonders. That that word see is important. Uh, This isn't a private conversation. There is a crowd that's listening in here, and Jesus is speaking to this man, knowing the crowd is listening and watching. And you know what's interesting? When Jesus heals the boy... He doesn't heal them in front of the crowd. In fact, Jesus did it so the crowd would not see. Look look at what verse 49 and 50 says. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. So he spoke the miracle. Jesus spoke the miracle and the man believed. But notice... He didn't actually see it happen, but the man believed it. And as we could see, if we kept reading, it was later confirmed that it happened. And so all this to say, this story is not about miracles. Uh, This miracle, Jesus actually hid from the public eye. They never saw it. Jesus didn't want to show it to them because he didn't want them seeing a miracle to hinder their faith. Let me think about this. The man asked Jesus to come with him to heal his son. And if Jesus wanted the crowd to see it, you would think he would have gone with him and the crowd likely would have followed him. Or at least I know what I would have. It sounds like kind of a cool thing to watch, seeing Jesus heal a boy. But that's not what what happened. Jesus calls out the crowd's lack of faith and he did the miracle so nobody saw it. And you know who trusted Jesus' word? The man, not the crowd. The man trusted Jesus' word. Jesus uh, simply spoke a word to him, made a promise to him. The man did not see it with his eyes. But in verse 50, it says, the man believed the word. Jesus spoke to him and he went on his way. And all this to say, this, this story does not highlight the miracle. As we just saw, Jesus hid the miracle from the crowd. But rather, this story is about the man's faith. This man trusted Jesus for what he could not see. He trusted the word that Jesus spoke. He trusted the promise that Jesus made to him. 
And it wasn't just that uh, one time, as I want to show you, but the man's faith, it grew over time. So I know we're 15, 16 minutes in to the sermon, uh, but the main idea for today is not about healings and miracles. It's about faith. It's this. Believing in Jesus is not a one-time decision. It's a growing dependence. I want to show you more of this as we dive back into the story. And I know we've kind of been all over the place, all over the place this morning, um, but I want to stop and point out that we see this idea played out in Christianity and also in other areas of life. Like we see this idea in sports, in careers, in relationships, uh, this idea that the best days are behind us. Um, if we hold to this, it may hinder us. You know, I, you know, I love me some Tom Brady, okay? Total bandwagon fan, um, and I'm really not ashamed about it at all. Um, love or hate it, I didn't care one bit about the Bucks uh, when, Tom Brady, until John, uh, when Tom Brady joined the team. I went all in, okay? That's just what happened. Probably like half of you in here. One of my favorite Tom Brady quotes, um, when people ask him what's his favorite Super Bowl ring, what does he say? The next one. That's right. And I love it because he, it shows he's still hungry. You know, generally speaking, those who do the best in sports and in their careers are the ones that don't look back at their past successes, but they continually look forward. They live in the present, not the past. We see this similar idea in marriage. We often think that the most important day in our marriage is our wedding day, the day we say, I do. And yes, like we made uh, the promise on our wedding day, but let's think about this. How do I know today that I'm married? Because I come home to Kelly, my wife, tell her I love her. Uh, we go on a bunch of dates. I have a ring on my finger and, I, and the vows I made 12 and a half years ago, uh, I still hold to. Now, um, I don't know, maybe I should coin this and put it on a coffee cup, I, but this is so true, okay? The most important day in your marriage is today. It's how you love your husband and wife today. It's keeping your vows today. Your past successes uh, don't matter. Today is the day that matters. Yes, okay, we take responsibility for our past failures, but today is a new day. And at the heart of the gospel is a new fresh start. Today is the most important day of your life. And you know what? We, we can say all of that and it may, it may make for a good coffee cup or a good life quote. It all sounds good and great. But you know what often happens with our faith? It's so easy to base our faith on a past decision. This happens all the time. If you ask people, how do you know they're saved? Uh, they go to a decision they made in the past, maybe looking back to a baptism or a confirmation or a prayer they've prayed uh, as a security of their salvation, looking at a past event. And yes, listen, those things are important and they help us to remember our faith in times of doubt. And it's good for us to recall God's past faithfulness. But the best indicator of our present faith is not a past decision, but rather it's the faith that we have today. So please hear me on this loud and clear, okay? I'm not talking about salvation. I'm not talking, I'm talking about the strength of our faith. I'm not saying we need to keep asking Jesus into our heart. That's a one-time thing. Because once God starts something in us, the scriptures tell us he is faithful to bring it to completion. If God starts something in us, he will complete it. Just like I officially tied the knot on my wedding day, I, I was deemed Kelly's husband on that day. That declared me married. And so I don't, I don't keep asking Kelly to marry me. I don't wake up every day, get on one knee and ask her to marry me. You know, that would drive her nuts. Unless I had a ring every morning. Um... <laughs> But uh, either I'd go broke or she'd just get tired of it. 
But the point is, she's mine. I'm married. I don't have to keep asking her. And just like our faith, today, I don't look at the wedding certificate to make sure I'm still married or to see how it's going. No, I look at my marriage today. And so just like my marriage, the most important day in my faith journey is today. Again, our main idea today is that following Jesus is not a one-time decision, but it's an ongoing and a growing dependence. Maybe we can say it this way. The fruit of our faith is seen in how we grow in our dependence for Jesus today. You all, the best days of our faith are not behind us. Our faith is for today. So I don't know where you are in your faith journey. Maybe you're not a Christian. And you're just kind of checking things out. And, uh, but what we're talking about today is essential to a vibrant walk with Jesus. This is the difference between vibrant, authentic faith that transforms lives and some sort of stale religious duty. True faith is a faith that grows in ongoing dependence. And I also want to point out, um, and I wish this wasn't the case, but let's be honest, uh, faith is not always up and to the right all the time. If we looked at a line chart of our faith, I think we would look, I think it would look more like a little circular loop-de-doo, like then a straight line up and to the right. Uh, with two steps forward, one step back, one step forward, two steps back, three steps forward, one step back. I mean, that's just how life seems sometimes, right? Like a big squirrely loop-de-doo. These things happen, but God, by His Spirit, grows and deepens our dependence on Him, even in the loop-de-doos of life. So all that said, I, I know I'm over halfway through, um, but I want to walk back through this story, uh, this short story, a few verses at a time quickly. And I want to zero in on this man's faith seeing three quick points. Uh, We've got some more alliteration this week. Number one, a desperate man. Number two, a dependent man. Uh, And then to tie it up, we'll see number three, a dependable savior. And so uh, what led this this man's growing faith? He was desperate, he was dependent, and he trusted in his dependable savior. And I hope as we see, as we go through this, it will encourage all of us to be more zealous in our faith, seeing each day with the opportunity to take increasingly more steps of faith. You know, life is too short. God is too good and God is too big for our faith to be boring and stale. Because as we said at the beginning of our time, God has a grand mission and a grand purpose and God uses his faith-filled people to accomplish his purpose. Look at verses 46 and 47 again, just to see our first point. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Okay, so we've been talking a lot about this man uh, whose son was ill, but what we haven't talked about yet is that this man, he was an official. This man, he was a well-known man. The word official can also be translated a nobleman or a king's man. He was a a well-known man. Like He had a lot of power. This man had everything in life going for him except one thing. His son was ill. And there was nothing he could do about it. Verse 47 says, uh, he was at the point of death. You know, in the English translation of verse 47, it simply says he asked, which makes it seem kind of nonchalant. But a more full understanding of that word would be, he began to beg. He kept on asking. He didn't care about what was going on around him. He was following Jesus around him and repeatedly asking, Jesus, like, Jesus, please heal my son. He was pleading for his son's life. I think all the mamas and daddies out there, uh, I think, get this one. 
um, because there's nothing quite like your child being in a state of desperation, no matter what it is, and going to extreme lengths to help them in any humanly way possible. I know our family hasn't, uh, by God's grace, up to this point, we haven't been given a diagnosis of an impending death of a child, but I can only imagine the hysteria and, a ter- and the turmoil that a parent would feel. You know, I remember when our youngest, son, our youngest daughter, Millie, was born. She came by an emergency C-section. Uh, and Kelly, she had a lot of blood uh, come at 36 weeks. And after being on bed rest, she stopped everything she was doing while she was bleeding, and she rushed herself to the hospital She was going to do whatever it took to save our child. She was in a state of desperation. I remember also my sister's son, David, when he was about five months old. Come to find out, his intestines were out of order. That's just the way that he was born. And one day, when they were at the beach on vacation, he went completely limp. And in desperation, they rushed him to the hospital And then they had to then airlift him in a helicopter across the state to do an emergency life-saving surgery. Again, as a parent or a relative or a friend, those we're close with, we will do whatever we can to save their life. And that's what this high up official was doing. That's where we are in the story. He was in a state of desperation. He was, number one, a desperate man. He had all the money. He had all the power at his fingertips, but yet he was still powerless. He was unable to help his son. So what did he do? In faith, he heard that Jesus was coming and he went to Jesus. And he repeatedly asked Jesus to help him. He had heard about what Jesus had done in the past and he believed that Jesus could help his son. This was his first step of faith. He saw his helplessness, how he couldn't do anything, and in his desperation, it propelled him towards Jesus. And so as we think about this in our own lives, in our own faith, let's ask the question, is this how we would describe our relationship with Jesus? Are we desperate for Jesus? Just like we talked about last week, like we're, we're all thirsty and drinking from some source, but do we realize Jesus is what we're desperate for. This guy believed that if anybody could help him, it would be Jesus. Is that where we are in our faith journey? I'm not, I'm not saying we're in like a constant state of panic. No, not at all. That's not what I'm saying. But rather, do we wake up desperate for Jesus? Do we go about our day realizing our extreme need for Jesus? You know, one of the most dangerous places to be in our Christian faith what will inevitably freeze our faith, so to speak, what will keep us from a white-hot faith is to be in a place of indifference, just kind of bored. Like, yeah, I believe in Jesus. I believe he died on the cross for my sins. I believe I'm forgiven, but meh, meh, it's whatever. I'll figure it out. And I was thinking about this this past week, and my mind went to Revelation 3, thinking about the church at Laodicea. Um, That's neither hot nor uh, cold. They're just kind of meh about their faith. Look what Revelations 5, uh, Revelation 3, 15 and 17 says about indifferent faith. It says, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot, but that you were either cold or hot. So because, of you, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Okay, so I'm not trying to preach fire and brimstones here. 
but all over the Bible, an indifferent, lukewarm faith is greatly warned. Authentic faith is a desperate faith that realizes their need for Jesus. I mean, just imagine my wife with Millie in the womb, gushing up blood, and she's just kind of meh about it. Like, eh, oh well, I guess I'll just sit here. No, like you would think she was crazy. But yet that's how we are with our faith oftentimes. And this is not to heap on guilt, okay? But rather to spark us towards desperation for us to see ourselves clearly in the mirror. Y'all, there's no hiding this. Each and every one of us, Ephesians 2 tells us, without Jesus, we are lost and without hope, considered children of wrath. We are dead in our trespasses and sins in need of mercy and following the course of the world. I mean, our natural bent and our natural self every day is to bend and drift towards sin and unbelief. Again, this is not to heap on guilt, but to bring us to reality and to see that we, like this man, are needy and desperate. In order for us to fully understand our dependable Savior, we must first realize our desperation and need. We need to understand the bad news of our sin before we can understand the good news of the gospel. We need to understand our desperation for God in order for our faith in Jesus to grow deeper and deeper. And so let me ask, Christian or non-Christian, do you understand your need for a Savior today? Do you understand that without Jesus, we're considered stained and guilty before a holy God? And so let's ask ourselves, are we desperate for God's Word to regularly look at our dependable Savior and be reminded of how He lavishes us with love? Are, you, are we hungry for biblical community with others? Uh, are we hungry to kill sin, to love what God loves, and to grow in holiness? Or are we just kind of meh about it all. You know, I think if we're honest, we all at times uh, in our life and in our days, we can all move towards indifference. This happens to all of us, I think. Uh, But as we'll see in a minute, praise God that we have a dependable Savior (laughs) that continues to take us back and draw us in time after time after time. So let's look at the next few verses of our short story. Verse 48. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Again, we've already addressed this. Jesus here is is talking uh, indirectly to the crowd about the signs and warnings, uh, uh, wonders warning the crowd. And I love the man's response. Look at verse 49. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. So Jesus was in his divine teaching moment um, for all those observing him. And the man's like, okay, great, but my son really needs some help. Uh, Can you come help him before he dies? You know, I do this all the time with my kids. Um, they ask for something. It seems like a great teaching moment. I teach them something completely different than what they ask for. Um, they ignore what I was trying to teach them, and they uh, do what this official does, and he continued to ask. He didn't ask once. No, he kept asking. And look at verse 50. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went on his way. The man asked Jesus to come with him, and Jesus doesn't go with him like we said earlier. No, he simply says, go, your son will live. And what did the man do? He trusted Jesus' words. He, yet again, he showed faith, and he went on his way. He stopped asking him, and he trusted him. He didn't say, yeah, that's great, but I still want you to come. No, he heard Jesus' word, And he trusted him. He truly believed uh, that Jesus' word was true. He believed the promise that Jesus made, and he believed it would come true. 
And so in faith, not yet knowing what would happen, he trusted Jesus and he walked away, showing he was, number two, a dependent man. He entirely depended on Jesus. He was desperate for Jesus. And then we see here he trusted him. He depended on him for his son's life. I don't know if you picked up on this, but I counted at least five or six times uh, this man showed faith in Jesus in some way. He first heard he was, he was coming, and then he believed he could actually do something, and he believed it enough to, to then take action and go look for him, and he then repeatedly asked him to heal him. And then Jesus makes a statement, and then uh, the man showed faith again, and he asked again, and he then uh, believed Jesus' word when he said he healed him. And then at the very end in verse 53, it says, He and his entire household believed. And so throughout this entire encounter, this man showed an ongoing and growing dependence on Jesus. And so let me ask you, does this characterize your life? Just like we saw last week, we're all thirsty. We all have a yearning inside of us. But the question we need to ask is, are we depending on Jesus to fulfill that longing? Or maybe something else. Are we depending on ourself? Maybe our ability Maybe, maybe our bank account, maybe our spouse, our friends, our job. What is it that when all else fails, or, or maybe when everything is good, you depend on? Let I me mean, just think about this. We all have these longings, these soul yearnings and thirstings inside of us, like this is uh, that are created, uh, that, that create a physical or emotional or an unmet need we may have. Um, this is just how God created us. And those soul yearnings are intended to be fulfilled first by God. But we also know God gives us good gifts to be enjoyed with his, uh, within His design. For example, okay, maybe we're desperate for relational connection because God created us for that. To first connect in relationship with God and then secondly with others. Uh, real life relational connections are good gifts from God. But what often happens is we depend on the wrong thing. We're longing maybe for relational connection, uh, and if God isn't first filling that void and then also from others in healthy ways, will then depend on the other sources to fill that void, like pornography or shopping or stuff or excessive drinking or social media or, or seeking ex excessive attention. I mean, there are so many ways this could play out where God designed us to depend on Him, but we depend on other things. I mean, here, here's another one. We often think we're desperate for money, for more money. Money's not evil. Uh, having more money can be a gift. But oftentimes we focus on our desire for more money. But the problem is not that we need more money, but rather we're not content with what God has given us. And we then depend on more money or we overspend or we just rack up debt. And I know this isn't always the case. And there are people who live in genuine poverty, but most of the time our money problems are not that we don't have enough money, but rather that we're not, they're not money problems, but contentment problems. And extreme generosity, like the Bible calls us to, it starts with extreme contentment. We all have these longings within us, but we often depend on the wrong thing. We all have within us an understanding that something's not right. There's a sense of desperation, so to speak. And God created us to depend on Him. God created us to continually grow in our dependence to Jesus. And as soon as we stop growing in our dependence in Jesus, our faith often gets stale and stagnant. 
Because when we stop depending on Jesus, we stop taking steps of faith, and we in turn start to depend on other things like more money or more sex or more power or status. Y'all, this is why fasting is so good for Christians, (laughs) because it just shocks our system. It shows us our need, and we're then led to depend on Jesus, and our faith grows. Again, the path to greater faith is a growing dependence. When we give generously and extravagantly of our resources, of our time, of our talents and our treasures, it benefits us individually, I would say, maybe more than those we're giving it to. God has designed generosity to be for our good because it unties our hearts to this world and it then reties it to the kingdom of God. When we give generously to God's kingdom, we start to want to see God's kingdom grow. When we give generously to the church, we grow in our love for the church. When we serve our community and our love, and our, lo- our, our love for the community grows. When we pray and beg God to heal the sick physically or emotionally, uh, the hurting and sick, God grows and strengthens our faith. And our love for the hurting and sick, it grows. Our, it grows our view of God. It grows our love for others. And it draws our attention off of ourselves. When we seek to make disciples and go on short-term trips and pray for the unreached and give to missions, we grow in our love for the Great Commission. I mean, the, the fastest way to a boring, stagnant, stale faith is to go through the motions and just do nothing. If we never sacrifice and are never stretched, it's a surefire way to not grow in our faith. Y'all, Jesus was sacrificed on the cross to gain us. Ongoing sacrifice, no matter what it is, is ingrained into our faith. It's one of God's means to grow us and to grow our trust in Jesus. New City Church, may we not only look back to how God has worked in the past, but what does it look like for us to believe as the people of God that the best days are ahead of us? Trusting Jesus for what we can't see. What does that look like? What does it look like for us to believe that today is the most important day in our faith journey? What does it look like for us to believe that God, what God has right in front of us is our greatest step of faith that, will, that may grow our faith yet again? I mean, what unreached people groups can be taken off the map by our people, maybe you, taking a major step of faith in moving our lives or your life to a place where the name of Jesus is not known? I mean, how many more churches can be planted to push back darkness in places where it seems like the enemy has a stronghold in an area uh, by our relentless praying and extravagant giving and a no-holds-back exuberant faith that's committed to go and sin? What does it look like to go out of our way and reach out to people and spend time with people and serve people that don't look like us, talk like us, or live like us? New City Church, what does it look like for us to be a people who unashamedly lay down our life and radically depend and trust on number three, a dependable Savior. We first considered our desperation for Jesus. We then contemplated our dependence on Jesus. And as we end our time, I want to call us and remind us that, yes, Jesus Christ is a dependable Savior. Now, I love how this story ends. The man asked him to heal his son, and what did Jesus do? He healed his son. And what's great about it all, and so faith-building, is not because he healed his son, but because he said he would do it, and he did it. Jesus saw the man's desperation. The man believed in faith. He depended on Jesus, and Jesus healed his son, showing yet again that God keeps his word. So how can we trust God for the future? 
Because he's been faithful in the past. Do you know what confirmed Jesus' faithfulness to keep his word for this man? This man's confirmation of his faith was in his son, son's life being restored from a near-death experience. The man believed in Jesus again. He believed uh, his word was faithful and his faith was confirmed because Jesus uh, restored and rescued his son. Do you know what we look to as a confirmation? That God is faithful to keep his word? <laughs> for all, do, do you know what we look to for all the promises we see in the Bible, like the fulfillment of the Great Commission? Our confirmation of faith was God sending his son to the cross and raising Jesus' life from the dead. Jesus' life wasn't near death like the boy in this story. No, Jesus was raised from the dead. Our confirmation of faith is that Jesus went to the cross and rose from the dead. And by believing in Jesus, he is living and active in our lives. And he shows himself over and over and over again that he is good and faithful and worthy of our trust. You know, God has been doing this for thousands of years. He makes promises and then he keeps them. You know what I love about the gospel that we often leave out? That is a, a promise for us that can't be forgotten. <laughs> it's that he doesn't just forgive us of our sins, but he gives us then his righteousness. He, Jesus gives us his standing, his right standing before God. So when we believe in Jesus, no matter how undependable we are, he looks at us as his beloved children, and he repeatedly pours out his love on us. When we see God's love and taste it and experience it, it keeps us desperate and dependent on it. New City Church, let's ask ourselves, are we growing in dependence in Jesus? All this manifests itself in a bunch of different ways. In our spiritual disciplines and fasting and prayer, praying in faith for God to heal, it shows us in the time in the word and service and our commitment to the church. It, it also manifests itself in sacrificial giving and missional living as well as so many other ways. But y'all, without a doubt, we have a dependable Savior that will be with us every step of the way. And so again, let's ask, where may God be calling you to grow in dependence? Where is Jesus leading you to trust him with greater faith where you can't see the outcome, but you need to trust God's word that he is faithful? And that may just be where God plans to grow your faith. Let's pray. God, you are good. You're faithful. You're powerful. You're dependable. Father, may we today trust in Jesus with everything that we've got. May we walk, uh, walk out our faith today knowing that today's, today is the day that you have given us. Father, may we trust you today. If there are people in this room who have yet, not yet to trust in Christ, Father, may they, may they see you as dependable, as trustworthy. Would they call out to you in faith and may they respond in faith. Father, we, we're desperate for you. We know you're dependable. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.